Good morning. My name is Chuck Potts, and I'm the pastor of Young Adults here, and it's a privilege to be able to speak with you guys this morning. Um, if you know me well, you know that I really love movies. Uh, it's actually something me and Pastor Stacy have in common. Uh, and before we get into the, uh, what we just heard from Revelations 4, I want to share with you one of my all-time favorite movie moments. Uh, this is from uh, the adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel, uh, the movie Contact, that came out in 1997. Uh, if you haven't heard it, you've had like, you've had like 25 years to watch it, so I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, in the movie, Dr. Elliot Arroway, who is played by Jodie Foster, as you can see in the uh, poster there, um, she races to interpret a possible message uh, originating from another star system. And then within this message, she uncovers blueprints for a device that theoretically could transport a single person to some unknown place in the galaxy. Um, Dr. Airway has chosen to go on this. She uh, takes this device and is seemingly being transported somewhere uh, that she doesn't know. And as we're watching this, we're seeing her experience, and she is relaying all the information that she can um, through her headset. She's trying to give, like a good scientist would do, give all the details of everything she's experiencing. And then all of a sudden, the device that was shaking and rattling, it stops, and it pauses. And the walls of the device become translucent for a moment, where uh, Ellie is, is seeing outside what's, what's happening. And she, she looks intently, and she sees what looks like this galaxy, or what she describes as this celestial event. And it cuts back to her expression, and her eyes light up in awe and wonder. And the, the special effects artists for the movie, they, they begin to dub over her face, um, the actress, Jenna Malone, who plays her as a child, uh, dub it back and forth between Jodie Foster's and her face, as if to say that her scientist, the, the wisdom and knowledge she had melts away for that moment, and she experiences it the only way that she could, and that's as a child. And then she says one of her, one of her quotes that is one of my favorites of all time. She says, there are no words, no words to describe it. Poetry. They should have sent a poet. So beautiful, I had no idea. To me, this is the reality that John is facing as we get to Revelation chapter 4, as he's invited into God's throne room. Words simply aren't good enough to describe it. But John, luckily, is a poet and a wordsmith, and he does his best. But I want to start with a sense of awe and wonder as we're going to enter into chapter 4, because this is the point of the book where the revelation actually kind of begins. Uh, we start in chapter 1 with an introduction to uh, what John was experiencing at that point, and then also establishing Jesus Christ as the, the voice, the author of what was uh, about to be revealed and what was about to happen. And uh, then we go into the past couple chapters that we've been in for weeks now, which is the letters to the seven churches, uh, this Christ message to the current church of the time. Um, and th that's really an emphasis on the present reality for John. Um, and there's a bunch of poetic words in there and things that we've, we've been picking apart for weeks now. Um, but as we're navigating this, this is all faced with Old Testament prophecy and things that they already knew. Now we're entering something new. And it starts in verse 1, Revelation 4. John is stepping into something new, and he says, After this, meaning after all these letters that he had just explained to the churches, says, I looked... And there before me 
right before him, was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had, the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which um, this is a reference to chapter 1, verse 10, when it talked about Jesus being the one talking like a trumpet from behind him. That voice, Jesus says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This indicates to John that we are entering something new altogether. It says in verse 2 that he was in the Spirit. Spirit, capital S. The Holy Spirit brought him to witness this thing that he couldn't experience on his own. And John, he, he's, he's speaking not from our Western lens at this point. So he's describing what's going to happen. We Westerners love to pick apart and analyze everything, and we love to believe that there's some hidden code found in everything, but really he is an Eastern thinker, and he's writing to Eastern readers, and the Eastern lens says that it's not about explaining all the details, like a scientist, like Dr. Airway, explaining the details of what's happening so that we can analyze it and decipher it. He's a poet, and his purpose is to describe what he's experiencing it so that we can experience it. I want to start and preface with this reality because I don't plan on looking at all the details and all the many ways we can interpret everything in this chapter. What I'm more interested in is what it says about who God is, about us, and what God's hope for us is. It starts uh, right there in verse 2. Uh, many scholars believe that this, uh, this is one of the most encouraging verses that we can read. Of course, it's, you know, uh, Jesus is being raised from the dead is our most encouraging, but this is close. It says, uh, John says, there, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And there was a person who was sitting there, not a being or a spirit or a creature. It was someone. And, and then it goes on. The, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Again, you can pick apart what jasper and ruby means, but really, jasper and rubies, they're, they're precious stones that are red like blood. So this is representing Christ on the throne who, who shed his blood for the sins of the world. He's indicating that Christ is sitting there on his throne, and encircling him is this uh, rainbow that shone like an emerald, bright and shiny. The rainbow being a symbol of God's promise from, gener- from, from Genesis. Like I said, this should be one of the most encouraging statements there for believers like us. That God, the God who keeps his promises not to destroy, but instead to redeem and to restore. He sent his son to shed his blood in our place. And in the end, he sits on the throne. In the end, he sits on the throne. And then no matter what trial you're facing, no matter what power you're fighting to try to overcome in your life, in the end, the one who, that we put our trust and our hope in remains on the throne of promise and of hope, victorious over our struggles. Amen? This is good news. This is hope. To me, the, the revelation could really end there, and we can just move on for the rest of the book, because that's the good news we really need. But John continues. So the next verse Stacy alluded to last week, uh, in verse 4, it says that surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 
Now, Stacy pointed out that there, there are a couple different possible interpretations here, like with the numbers. Um, it could be the 24, half and half, 12 and 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. It could even be one for every hour of the day. That's not as important to me as what they look like. That, that the, they were wearing white and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Both of these tell us something about who they were, about these elders. These were the believers who had been faithful to God. Last week in chapter 3, um, John used the symbolism of white clothing when he was talking to the church of Laodicea to tell them to wear white clothes because they cover up their shameful nakedness. Right? The white clothing representing the, the holiness and the purity that comes um, from our forgiveness. So, so seated around the throne of God were representatives of humanity who could be clothed in white, meaning free of sin. And the only reason they could do that is because the one who looked like red sitting on the throne. And then the crown that they were wearing, this is a reference to the victor's crown, uh, which we've talked about a couple times. It's a concept explored throughout uh, New Testament and Scripture throughout the past couple weeks as we've been in Revelation. Chapter 2, when he's talking to uh, the church in Smyrna, uh, telling them to remain faithfully, he, he tells them um, that God will then give them their crown of victory, their victor's crown. Chapter 3, verse 11, talks to the church of Philadelphia, encouraging them to not lose their, their crown because Christ is coming soon. But it also harkens back to Paul, 1 Corinthians 9. He's talking about being disciplined, the discipline of runners, that they run this race and only one gets the prize. Then he says that they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it. We persevere. We are disciplined and faithful to get a crown that lasts forever. We're in James chapter 1, one of those verses that are on all those wooden plaques at Hobby Lobby. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. These are the crowns we're talking about, that the elders were wearing. The crown represents our life of faith, our commitment to Christ, and what the end result will be after, after we face all these challenges of life. And are victorious because Christ, who took our sins and failures, he restores us as victors in the end. So back to our passage from Revelation 4. Those who sit before God's throne represent those who remain faithful. Uh, not just the 12 tribes, not just uh, the 12 disciples, but all those who have been forgiven are now victorious over sin. Uh, moving on to verse 5. It said that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This should remind us of stories of God's might throughout old, the Old Testament. Stories like Moses uh, that is, is meeting with God on top of Mount Sinai. Use similar language there. Or uh, thanks to our friends at the, the Bible Project, they uh, pointed this one out to me. Um, it makes me think of uh, God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.8 says that um, Adam and Eve, right after they'd first sinned, um, it says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That word for sound is the Hebrew word kol, and it's actually translated in the King James Version as the, the voice of God. And elsewhere in Scripture, it's, it's literally translated as thunder and thunderings. And so the flashes of light and the rumblings of thunder, this, this coming from the throne, it indicates God's mighty presence and power at the throne. 
And continue in verse four, it's, or verse five, it says, "In front of the throne, there seven lamps were blazing, and they, these are the seven spirits of God." Uh, we've talked about this a couple times too. This is a direct reference that the uh, good Jewish readers of the time would have known from Isaiah eleven, uh, the prophetic word about the coming Messiah. It says that um, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse; from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This means this is this meaning Jesus, who comes from the the line of Jesse. Then in verse 2 it says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Which should make us think about the Holy Spirit in his baptism, like a dove resting on him. It says, it goes on to define what the Spirit is. It says, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And if you've been counting, that's seven. So you have the, the, the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. All of which are characteristics of the Holy Spirit as we experiencing him. The third part of the Trinity, which means that the entirety of the Trinity, the triune God, is represented there on the throne. The Son depicted by the ruby and the jasper. The Father, the thunder, and the Holy Spirit in these lamps. All together at the throne. Now, the next verse, verse 6, is the middle of the chapter. And to be honest, it is the only verse from Revelation I've ever preached on before this morning. Um, and it's because this is a verse, as it was taught to me, it meant a lot to me. I connected with it. And um, only, the only way I can really express to you why I connected to it is by sharing a story. So it's story time. Uh, this is the story of the secret lake of Buffalo Gulch. Uh, in the summer of 1999... Little 12-year-old me was living with my mom and my stepdad uh, in a tiny town called Elk City, which is in the far northern uh, forests and mountains of Idaho. Uh, my stepdad was working for the, log the logging industry that summer, and so as I was there to visit, uh, we were there with my mom, and we were living in this log cabin on the side of this uh, hillside, this mountain right next to Elk City, uh, which for your reference is the least city city you'll ever hear of. Uh, it has a population of 116 currently, and it had one store that was also the gas station and the restaurant. So it was very, very remote. A tiny little town. And, uh, back behind our house was this small dirt road called Buffalo Gulch Road. And off of this road was a little walking path that went off into the forest. Uh, and a few of the other logging families had kids, and they came and told us stories of what this was. They told us that the path led to this secret lake. And so, of course, being... 12, and with my older siblings, we decided to go and explore and to find this secret lake. And uh, it looked something a little bit like this. Now, I had an AI generator help me make this picture because I scoured the internet and could not find that lake anywhere. I don't know if it's dried up. I don't know what it is. But to the best of my memory and what I experienced, this is exactly what it looked like. It was small, and it had colors like this. The, the outside around the edges was light blue because you could see right through it. It was like five or six feet deep. Uh, you can see all the rock and the sands that was below, and it was uh, clear, and it was still. But then as you get to the center, it got really dark, really fast, because all of a sudden there was a drop-off in the middle. And this terrified me as a kid. Uh, looking back, I assumed that maybe it was like some sort of like sinkhole, perhaps, like the rainwater had collected there over time. Um, but to my little 12-year-old brain, uh, this was horrifying. What was in the center? What was down there? 
You know, and, and a little insight into me to, to be vulnerable even. Um, I, I have a fear of water, especially water that you can't see through. I don't like swimming in lakes. I don't like swimming in the ocean. If I can't see through it, I don't want to be in it. And so this was particularly terrifying to me. I didn't want to go that far into this lake. I, I, I just imagined what was down there. And so my, as my imagination is running wild, I became afraid of this secret lake in Buffalo Gulch. It, it literally gave me nightmares for years. But um, I want to use this reference of this lake um, when we look to verse 6. It says that in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. You see, people of the day, and even now, have a fear of, of the sea like I do. Because they, they didn't have the ability back then, they didn't have the, the technology to see what was down at the bottom. To them, it was this great abyss, and all they knew of it was that it swallowed ships, and that nothing could see in the bottom. The, the sea represented chaos and death. Of course, it was a source of life, like to get food from, but at the same time, it was scary, and it was a, it was a powerful piece of nature that was chaotic in nature and, and hard to predict. And so this is why the sea is often representative of the chaos of life. As a side note, this is why the stories like Jesus and Peter walking on the water, and this is, you know, Jesus calming the storm, this is why these are powerful images for, for the disciples at the time, because it represent, the sea represented this chaos, this unpredictability, this uncontrollability, and this fear. And so when I look at this passage and I see this sea of water that stands before God and his throne... What is chaos and impossible to see through and to know what will happen next in our lives before God, it is still and calm. So calm and it's like glass, clear as crystal. Meaning that what we see as chaos, God sees with clarity. So again, the next time that you're having a tough day or you're anxious about um, not knowing what's going to happen in your life, not knowing what's going to happen next. Next time your life feels like you're being tossed about on a chaotic sea, remember that God is on his throne, and before his throne is your life, and he sees it in clarity. This gives me hope. Now, the last half of this chapter is really puzzling, <laughs> but it's also really critical for where the rest of the book is going to go. Uh, first, we, we see the around the throne what's described as four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. The first looks like a lion, the second an ox, the third had a face like a man. Notice it doesn't say that it was a man, it had a face, the depiction of a human. And the fourth, the fourth was like a flying eagle. And it says that the each have six wings, and again, it makes the point to point out here that they are covered in eyes all around, even underneath the wings. And then it said that the, the day and night... They never stop worshiping and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, there are several references and ways we can go with this. Uh, and the first and most obvious will be for the reader to look back to the Old Testament and see that in Isaiah 6, Isaiah prophesied about seeing God's throne there too. And in that depiction, in verse 2 of, of Isaiah 6, it says, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. So as they're reading this, they're going to remember this from, uh, from Isaiah. Uh, but many uh, scholars like uh, theologian N.T. Wright also point out that the faces represent 
the creatures of creation, the human being part of them, but also the, uh, the king of the wild beasts, the lion, the, the massive leader of all the tamed animals, the ox, and the, the king of the skies, uh, the eagle. Well, there are um, many ways that we can interpret what we're seeing. One of the most interesting to me is that these angelic creatures that are representing the natural creation, they're driven by pure instinct to worship God day and night. But then you see in verse 9, there's a distinction that makes, that separates um, that image and the 12 or the 24 elders that we see. 24 elders, again, are representing those who are faithful and uh, put their, their trust in Christ. Um, those whose sins have been purified, who now wear white and have their crowns of victory. Um, N.T. Wright describes this distinction as what makes us human. In his book, it's titled Revelation for Everyone, which you might think is familiar. Your life group may be using that as a companion to the series right now, but uh, in his book, he says that scientists and anthropologists have often asked, what is it that humans can do that computers cannot do? Which I think is a very relevant question, considering all the AI and stuff we're, we're, uh, we have now. N.T. Wright points out that humans can weep and can forgive, which are both very powerful activities that take place in a different dimension altogether, um, and that's what makes them human. And without them, we would be less than human. But he goes a step further, and he then asks uh, and describes that, um, what distinguishes humans from animals. And he says that this, the distinction is the word because. The humans can understand why or have reason. It's our gift of enlightenment and thought. We can understand deeper meaning, the because. And that is what separates the two songs of worship here in Revelation 4. The first, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is sung by all of creation out of instinct. It's like in all the Psalms, or like Psalm, Psalm 64, it says, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. This is a common thread. All of creation worships God. But the second song is sung by those that God made in his own image that have chosen him. That to the best of their understanding, they've heard the good news and they've chosen to repent of sin and to follow Jesus. They knew their why. They knew why they should worship God. And so their song is different. Starting in verse 9, it says that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That word for is the word because. You are worthy because you created all things, and by your will they have been created and have their being. And T. Wright says that creation as a whole simply worships God instinctively, but the humans who represent God God's people and, and those who understand why they do so, why they worship. Humans are given the ability to reflect and to understand what's going on, which means that we can express that as our worship. And so for the elders, with all of their understanding, they know that the only proper response 
to the holiness, the incredible power, and the glory of God is to fall down to their feet, the throne of Jesus, to, to lay down our crowns that, that, that can only be worn because of what Christ did in the first place, and to worship God. This is a beautiful and mysterious vision in Revelation 4 of God's throne. And along with all the vision of all creation, including God's human creation, worshiping, bowing down and worshiping God, this is a picture of heaven. It doesn't, doesn't mean it's a picture of the future. I mean, it does say that, that, that he's showing them what must take place. But, but at this beginning part, as he's entering into this, he's entering into God's kingdom. And from there, it's, it's the reality of the present. The rest of, the, of, of chapter 4 and everything, it, it's all depiction of king, the kingdom of God, which Jesus described over and over and over again as imminent. It's right there, just before us. Just like the door was just before John as it opened up, the kingdom is right there. And if that is true, then this should be how we enter into worship all the time. Not just Sunday mornings when we're here. Not just in our life groups or in our, our quiet time of devotion. This should be the way we live our lives each and every moment with our why in mind, our because in mind. It should influence what we do. We should use this why as a reason to do everything as an act of worship, as an act of reverence to God. Because he sits on his throne that is just before us. And we, sh we shouldn't be afraid of the chaos and the fear and the anxiety of life because just before us, before God's throne is us, our lives, laid out clear as crystal. And he's got it. Our response should be that of worship. For us to live our lives in praise to God. We should live our lives in reverence. We should respond to God's work in all of creation by taking off our victor's crown and placing it at the feet of Jesus. This is why... This is why I'm against the poor theological understanding that we, you know, we do everything just to store up our treasures in heaven. No, this is right before us. The throne is there. The kingdom is now. We should live our lives daily just out of response to what the kingdom of God represents. Christ on his throne, us forgiven. Our victory is only because of Christ, and his throne is there before us. So, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as they do, I, I want to take this, this last moment that we have entering into worship and to do it together. And I want to invite you, as the music is going to be um, kicking in, to take a moment and close your eyes. I want, to, I want you to think about your because. Use that human gift to know why and to understand, and use it to ask, why, why does God deserve my praise today? Why does God deserve my reverence in this moment? For me, I think of all of the sin in my own life, and yet I'm forgiven. And yet I can be clothed in white I can wear the crown of victory. 
because of the one who sits on the throne. And I am so thankful that he sees my life and all of its chaos and brokenness. He sees it with complete clarity. And he still forgives me. And so my desire, my act of worship, my response to this beautiful gift for which there just are no words to describe it. It's pure poetry. My response is to lay my crown at the feet of Jesus who sits on his throne in his kingdom that is imminent and just before us. So let us take a moment to ponder this to consider our reason and to sing and worship together.